Hi, Tom Bernard here. You're listening to Best of the Family. Enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw and Bryant. So what's the latest? The well, latest is we're representing people who are injured through no fault of their own. Uh, people come to us, we talk to them about what their rights are. We talk to them about things that, you know, adjusters would call them up and ask them about. And we represent people in order to get them justice for the injured. And have been for a long time. Very, very successful, no question. I, I, you know, I do meet a lot of your clients. They come up to me on the street and whatever, and they talk about this, that, or the other thing. And they both say... Why do you guys hang out with Doug Sprinthal? <laughs> and I just had no answer. For <laughs> he just looks away, you big baby. In any case, that's the whole deal. So people, they got any problem whatsoever, personal injury or other legal problems, whatever, they just reach out to Brad, Sean, Bryant. Yeah, Joe and I have both been president of the trial lawyers for the state. So we talk to people about all sorts of issues. The consultation is always free, and that's what we do. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean, Bryant. Tom here for my friends at Walzer Automotive Group with some exciting news. Walzer's rolling out Walzer Care on new and most used cars they sell in Minnesota. Well, Walzer Care is a powertrain warranty with coverage for 10 years or 150,000 miles. Powertrain coverage is like major medical coverage for your car. Engines, transmissions, all the really expensive stuff is covered. In addition, Walzer Care includes 24-hour roadside assistance. Lock your keys in your car, run out of gas, have a flat tire. Guess what? Walzer has your back. The best thing about Walzer Care, it's free with purchase. That's right, I said free. So, if you're shopping for a new or used Subaru, Honda, Nissan, Mazda, Toyota, Buick, GMC, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, Ram, Hyundai, or Chevrolet, see my friends at Walzer and get Walzer Care for free. This is the Tom Bernard Show. I'm Dave Schrader, along with me, Mike Molina. Tom Bernard is off today and tomorrow. He'll be back with us on Monday. Mike, I've got a guest joining us now, a uh, good friend of mine, a uh, good friend of our show on Beyond the Darkness. He is a uh, author, researcher, investigator, and world traveler. He conquered Kilimanjaro, which is something I'm completely jealous of, but also glad I didn't have to do it myself. Joining us now, Mr. Jeff Belanger. Hello, Jeff. Hey guys, great to be with you. Good to uh, good to have you here. So Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah, nineteen thousand three hundred and forty-one feet. If you're keeping score. Yikes! Every foot of it, I bet you felt on that travel up there, didn't you? <laughs> well, you know the funny thing about altitude is that you don't quite know how you're going to deal with it until you get there. And I recall being at a place called Estes Park, California, uh, Colorado, <laughs> Colorado with, right, with a guy named Dave Schrader. <laughs> Uh, at the Haunted Stanley Hotel, which is about 7,200 feet above sea level. And remember when you'd walk up a flight of stairs and you'd just be huffing and puffing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, I do that regularly, but it's even worse at the Stanley Hotel. The only upside is that uh, in that higher altitude, one beer equates like three beers. So drinking there's is that. a lot cheaper. But the, but the sad thing on Kilimanjaro is that there are no bars on the mountain. What? Uh, none. There's no toilets, no, no showers. How no. about a White Castle? Is there one of those? There is a White Castle, but it's closed. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't help at all. Well, I know you had a very personal reason for taking this task on. And start us off with that, Jeff. Why, why climb Mount Kilimanjaro? 
Yeah, so this goes back to 2014, and um, my brother-in-law, Chris, was uh, diagnosed with cancer. And it was uh, took us out of nowhere. He had been losing some weight. He was 44 years old. And suddenly his doctor tells him, you have cancer. It's stage four. It's everywhere, fully metastasized, and you have 18 to 24 months to live. And before that, there were really no health problems. It was just, uh, what do we do? And so he spent really the next year in depression. But then after that, he and I got a lot closer because he was talking to me. And my sister didn't want to talk about it because, you know, she just was in denial. But he said, you know, I'm going through this weird thing, this, this process of dying. And... I, I know you're into weird stuff, Jeff. And I said, yeah, that's kind of true. So we got a lot closer in the next year as, as he kind of went through this process. And then he passed away uh, in December of 2016. And that was, um, that was hard for all of us. And I remember talking to him the week before he died. We talked for like three hours about this whole thing he was going through and uh, how he became very spiritual at the end. And he was having these out-of-body experiences where he... He, he could see himself, he saw his grandmother, who, who died when he was younger, and um, just all kinds of things. And he said the best he could figure is that something inside this broken machine was practicing, getting ready to, to come out. And so when he passed away, it was hard, and, and my nephew was six years old at the time, and um, it was just one of these things where I was like, man, you know, life is so short. Fast forward six months later, and a friend of mine from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society was uh, ran into me at an event, and she said, hey, we've got a fundraiser coming up. And I'd done fundraisers for them in the past, and I, I remember I did this light the night walk where we walked through downtown Worcester, Massachusetts for two miles holding a balloon with a, a little glow stick in it, and I raised like over $1,000 with social media. People were really generous. And I, I said, okay, Amy, you know, I'll, I'll help if I can, but I'm really busy. And she said, we're going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Now, Amy didn't know this, but I took two semesters of Swahili in college, which, to make the story even weirder, my professor, my Swahili professor, was the original lead singer and founder of Shanana. I mean, how do you make this up, right? <laughs> so, um, Strange synchronicities, my friend. <laughs> right. I mean, the guy went on before <laughs> Hendrix at Woodstock. Wow. So, um, so I saw Swahili, the the East African culture. Kilimanjaro was was on my mind for 20 years, and I hike. I, I do mountains in New England and so on. And I've always wanted to do Kilimanjaro. It's the tallest mountain in Africa. It's the largest freestanding mountain on Earth, meaning it's formed as a volcano instead of plate tectonics like the Himalayas. And it's, uh, it, you don't need technical climbing experience. So it's not like ropes and hanging by, you know, little pitons and things like that. You, you just have to get to the top. And so I looked at her and I was just like, wow, I can do this thing that's been on my bucket list for so long honor my brother-in-law who just passed away from cancer, raise money for a good cause. And I just went, Amy, I'm in. Let's do this. And so I started training all through the winter. I was put together with a team of uh, four other people from New England, and none of us knew each other. We were just all going to go do this thing for this great cause. And so we trained through throughout. And really, it's uh, a lot of endurance. So getting your body in shape, getting used to the cold, because Kilimanjaro, it's a six-day journey to the top and two days down. And uh, the, you're going to pass through, I mean, at the bottom, it's, it's the, right near the equator. It's like summer all the time. And then as you get further north, it tur- you know, further up the mountain, it turns into what feels like autumn. And then near the top, it's an Arctic tundra. So you can pass through, you know, summer to winter in the span of just a, a short amount of time. And you're thinking, well, gee, in Minnesota, we call that Tuesday, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so we, we, we train for all that. And um, it, it's, it's really one of these uh, 
big experiences that I became so singularly focused and also scared. Not so scared of, of the mountain or the flight or anything like that, but just scared that I would fail. And that fear of failure, you know, when you're in your 40s, that, that gnaws at you. I mean, people were donating money from all over the world for, to sponsor my climb. And, uh, you know, through the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, thousands of dollars were pouring in. And, and suddenly I'm just like, man, I don't want to let anyone down. I don't want to let any donor down. I don't want to let my family down. I don't want to let me down. And so by the time we got to Africa, it was, um, we landed at night. And it was it was dark, so we we get to the hotel. It's it's pretty late, and we just go to bed and didn't get to see anything. It's it's just driving at night. But the next morning, when I wake up, our hotel was three stories in this little town called Moshi, right outside of Kilimanjaro. And I said, "Hey, is there a place to get up on the roof and see the view?" And they said, "Yeah, there's a little stairway in the corner. You can get up there and look around." And when I get to the top, Dave, I got to tell you, I come around this last corner, and there's Kilimanjaro in front of me. And man, this thing fills the entire horizon. It's it's right there, and I felt the way you might feel when you imagine you're at a bar or something and your all-time favorite celebrity walks in, and it's just like, oh, my God, there's Mark Hamill from Star Wars right there. He just walked in. I mean, that's how I'm feeling. Like, there's this mountain I've been thinking about for decades, and I'm standing in front of it many miles away, but there it is, snow-capped, the, the glaciers at the top, these clouds moving below it, and I'm in Africa, man. It's amazing. It was just amazing to one, see that. Once you get so, past that first moment of awe, though, was there any slap of reality of oh my god i gotta climb that thing <laughs> you know what the thing about climbing a mountain and this is a there's a lot of life lessons here in this little discussion you you do it one step at a time you know you can't think about a whole mountain uh, it's like when i've written books you can't write a book it's too big it's too hard but you can write a paragraph and you can write a page and those turn into something so by the time we start the climb uh we, we started around six thousand feet that's where the, the the base camp was and it's it's a 45 mile journey that's going to take us up the, the mountain and then down back to to another different base camp and the first day or so is actually pretty easy it's pleasant it's not that high in altitude we're seeing monkeys and all kinds of interesting things but once you get above the tree line once you get through ten thousand feet suddenly everything's very different there's half the air up there and you have to walk pole pole, they say in Swahili, really slow. And as we're, we're getting higher and higher and there's no more vegetation, we're passing plaques where people have died, and it says their names. One person was struck by lightning, and you realize as these gray clouds are whipping all around you, I mean, because you're in the clouds. If there's an electrical storm, there's nowhere to hide, and we're covered in metal gear. We've got poles and, and, and spikes and all kinds of things, and, and there's nothing you could do except throw your pack down and get under, you know, get beside a rock. So as we're climbing through a landscape now that looks almost Martian, it's just brown as as long as you can see in this this this. And then once in a while, the the clouds move out of the way, but you still see that summit way up there. And at thirteen thousand feet, if you stand perfectly still, it wasn't that big of a deal. But if I were to just walk twenty yards, man, it felt like I just sprinted, huffing and puffing. And that's where we lost two people on our our trip. They they had to go back. The altitude was too much for them, and they had to turn back and and walk back down the mountain. But the real profound part of this uh, event really happened on the night we made the summit. And we were going for the summit from a place called uh, Barafu Base Camp, which is 15,000 feet in elevation. And we're going to start at midnight, and it's 3.1 miles from there to the summit, and it's going to take over eight hours to go those three miles. Wow. And at midnight, we get up, and it is so dark and so cold. I've never been so cold in my life. I'm a New Englander, man. We know cold, just like you guys in Minnesota. And I go out there, and uh, I'm, I'm well-layered. I've got the gear for it. I've tested it in the mountains. 
but it's so cold and so dark, and all we can see is the light from our, our headlamps lighting this little, you know, glow, tan glow around our feet. That's it. And you just walk and walk. And at first I'm doing okay, but around 3 in the morning, I'm as cold and it's as dark as I've ever been. And I, I, I'm having trouble breathing, so I'm breathing as deep as I possibly can to get enough air, but my face is freezing. So I put a mask on to cover it to, to keep warm, but then with the mask on, I'm not getting enough air, so I have to alternate between breathing and being warm enough. And I just thought, this is it, man. I've got a headache. I, I had to stop to pee at one point, and I'm trying to zip my jacket back up, and I can't get the zipper connected. It's like they won't go together. I feel completely intoxicated until one of our guides comes up and zips me up like a toddler. And I'm thinking, I can't do this. And it was that moment that I just took a deep breath, as deep as I could, and I said, I'm going to follow the feet in front of me just a little bit more. And around 5 a.m., I turned around, and I see this streak of purple across the whole horizon, and I realized the sun's coming. And I said, all right, man, just a little more, you know. Let me just see the sunrise. And by 6.30 in the morning, just as we made it to a place called uh, Stella Point, which is the rim of the volcano, but still another half mile or three-quarters of a mile to the summit, I turned around, and I saw the most incredible sunrise I've ever seen in my life. And I also saw there's no vegetation, there's no plants, no animals, no bugs, nothing around me that lives. And in that moment, two things happened. I felt Chris, I felt my brother-in-law with me, and I felt something much bigger than me was allowing me access to the summit of Kilimanjaro. Because the Maasai people down in the valley have a word for the summit that they call the house of God, because only God dwells up there. And I felt in that moment, I'm worthy, and, it's, and, and the sun's here, it's warmed up maybe 10 degrees, and I'm going to make it. And it was the most profound part of that entire climb, and I was still another hour from the summit. And sure enough, we turned around, and we trudged, and we dragged our butts, and we did make it to the summit, and we got pictures there, and that was amazing. And I took a picture holding a, uh, of me holding a photograph of my brother-in-law, Chris, and my nephew, Henry, because I wanted to give it to Henry to let him know that his uncle's strong and will be with him as long as possible. But that experience was so life-transforming. And I know the rest of my days, two things. One, I can climb Kilimanjaro. No matter how hard my life gets, I got that. And number two, that sunrise represents hope. And the amazing part about it is that hope is coming again tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. Every single morning is another opportunity to try again, to get inspiration and get yourself to the top of the mountain. And I'll never forget it. And it's just one more step. One more step moving forward. It's an, it's, and you climb a mountain one step at a time. And the other thing that you have to remember, as a mountaineer, uh, an old mountaineer told me this, you have to also remember the summit is halfway. It's no good to get to the summit and not be able to get down. That's not right. the experience. <laughs> when you get to the summit, you're halfway. And I told my daughter before I left, I said, look, when I get to the top, I'm halfway home. You know, the, the real goal is right back here with you. And uh, I'm, I'm very thankful that I got to accomplish that as well. How emotional was that moment to get to the top and see that vision? So, Dave, I'll tell you, at the summit, uh, I was laughing. I was crying all at once. It was just an explosion of emotion. And my thoughts, you get broken down to the simplest parts of who you are. I thought about my family. I thought about my brother-in-law, my sister, my nephew. And I thought about that sunrise. And there was no room for anything else because I couldn't breathe. I wasn't processing stuff very well. Um, you know, you just you, you can't think very straight at that altitude. There's, there's not enough air. 
So it just got, I got broken down to the simplest parts of me, and I just exploded emotion right there at the summit, laughing, crying, glowing inside, and I will never forget it. And I, if, it's, if that's something that calls to people, do it. Don't wait, you know, do it. Climb the mountain, because there's mountains that end up in our way through no fault of our own, and then there's mountains we put in front of us. And it's just so important that we climb those things, whatever they are, because we become better people for it. Well, you've inspired me. Next time you're going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, I'll send you with a video camera and you can stream me live so I can watch you do the entire climb. That would be perfect. I mean, because, you know, more weight to carry is just great. Yeah, well, they, they make those little portable GoPros. Uh, yeah, what a beautiful no story, man. What a great way to honor your brother-in-law and your nephew and sister and and carry that load to make it to that moment. And that it that it was so rewarding on both sides of that. That's just a fantastic story. Thank you for coming on and sharing that with us today. Yeah, man. I, you know, I love talking about it. And thank you, too. And I just hope maybe someone out there, someone gets inspired because it's worth doing. Don't sit around wondering what you could be doing. Go do it. Right. And I, I love the old saying, as simple as it is, inch by inch, everything's a cinch. Yard by yard, everything's hard. And if you continue to look at the mountain in front of you and see it as the mountain, it will seem impossible to cross but if you just look down and start taking those steps forward you'll yep. find out that before you know it you've got a lot more mile behind you than you do in front of you that's exactly the lesson of, of climbing any mountain all right thank you jeff belanger we will be back you're listening to the tom bernard show tom bernard here and here with me is the ceo of north american banking company michael bilski tell me michael i was reading on your website about a customer near where i grew up north minneapolis they were specifically looking for a community bank that's right, Tommy, Prestige Products. They had been with another community bank, but when their bank was acquired by a large regional bank, the owner felt like they were just seeing his business for the numbers on the page and not really understanding his long-term plans. So he met with a number of community banks in the area, including us. Luke at our branch in Shoreview met with the owner. They hit it off, and Prestige Products chose to work with us. Incidentally, their favorite part of working with Luke is that he gets excited about the same things that are important to them. Having a clear understanding of your long-term goals makes for a great relationship and our difference maker for your business. Why not bank with my banker? North American Banking Company, a better banking experience. Member FDIC, an equal housing lender. Tom Bernard here for Whiting Clinic LASIK and Cataract. There's no better time than now to ditch your contacts and pitch your glasses. Whiting Clinic is the place I trusted to do this for me, and it's not just me. There's a reason Whiting Clinic is the number one LASIK practice in the United States. Dr. Whiting's unsurpassed experience, the most advanced Contura laser technology, and lifetime coverage are all backed by Whiting Clinic's best price guarantee. Being the experts they are, they wanted to make sure you have the very best for your eyes, just like I did. Call now for Whiting Clinic's $500 off LASIK savings. If you're like me, not a big fan of glasses and contact lenses, then it's time you found out if you're a candidate for LASIK. And Whiting Clinic is definitely the place to go. Call 855-554-2020 today or visit whitingclinic.com to set up your free LASIK consultation. Remember to tell them that I sent you and save $500 on your LASIK. Offer good for a limited time. Call Whiting Clinic for details. Good for both eyes only. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Welcome back to the Tom Bernard Show. A little later, Ron McNeil from the Fab Four will be joining us. You hear that story, Mike? Climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Are you, are you a big outdoors guy? 
not like that. No, no, not to that degree. No, no. I like my biggest outdoors is walking from the front door to the car in like you know eight <laughs> inches of snow. But what a compelling story to get up and and hit that and go out and face that challenge. You know, it is. It's pretty remarkable that uh, I you know I wish I had it in me to get up and do something like that. I've done. Um, my own little mount climb, which was going to Romania. I'm going back out there in September this year. Nice. Following in the footsteps of Vlad the Impaler, Dracula, you know, to learn the history and all of that. And I go with a bunch of listeners from my show, Beyond the Darkness. And a few years ago, boy, five years ago, I woke up on Mother's Day and my chest was feeling bizarre, right? Just felt off. And I laid there for a little bit and I'm like, yeah, I don't like this feeling. Something doesn't feel right. My, my, my left arm is tingling. My chest hurts. So I got up. I took a shower, got out of the shower, laid down on my bed, and then uh, <laughs> texted my, my then-girlfriend, and I said, Hey, uh, can you come upstairs? I think I might be having a heart attack. And she goes, What? And she comes up. She goes, Yeah, you're just having anxiety. You're just stressed. I'm like, No, this, this feels different. This is weird. And I ended up going into the hospital that day. And, Mike, they were running all these tests, right, trying to figure out what was going on. And they're like, listen, you're, you're presenting as though you're having a heart attack. But we've drawn your blood. They do this thing called the stick where they draw your blood. They're looking for gases, I guess, that are released during a heart attack. They said, we're not finding any. We do an EKG, and your heart's doing well. But everything you're explaining sounds like a heart attack. And they said, we're going to do one more test, and then, you know, if, if that comes back negative, we're going to send you home. I said, all right. So they bring in my dinner that night, and I'm kind of picking at the dinner, and the doctor comes back in. He goes, well, I think we're going to send you home. We can't find any trace of this. You know, I don't know if it's anxiety. I don't know what's causing this, but, you know, we feel confident leaving you to go home. I said, okay. And all of a sudden, I reached up and grabbed my jaw, and it literally felt like somebody just reached in and cracked my jaw off. It, the pain was unbelievable, and I just started drooling, and I go, it feels like I just bit into a really ripe piece of watermelon. My mouth is salivating. My jaw is killing me. The doctor puts his hand on my chest, leans me back against the bed, and goes, get him into the ICU. He's having a heart attack. I'm like, you just got done telling me I'm not having a heart attack. Um, again, they couldn't find what was going on, but they said, we're going we're gonna to go in, and we're going to explore and see what we can find. They run these wires for me, and they find this clot had somehow slipped through a PFO, a hole in my heart that we didn't know existed. And he said, the, the, the chances of this happening are minuscule because the way the heart's built, when a clot comes in, it pumps it, and it should have shot it right up to my brain. And he said, and this clot is called a widowmaker. That would have been it. Your stroke would have hit, and that would have been bad. He said, but the way it came in, it dumped into this little offshoot. And he said, and it just sat there, and he showed me this picture. So, you know, of course, it's bigger, you know, because you're seeing the photograph of it. But it was like the size of my pinky, right? And it's this dark gray, and you see this real thin, trim line of black. He said, you see that thin line of black? I said, yeah. He goes, that was the blood flow. So you still had a very thin line of blood getting to your heart, but this clot was in the way. And he goes, so I literally just put the hose down and sucked it out. He said, so you had a massive heart attack, non-heart attack. Your heart's not scarred. You're not dealing with this. But that is as close to death as you can possibly get without dying or having a massive stroke. I'm like, really? And he goes, well, we're going to put you on blood thinners. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And when he had first said that they were going to go in through the thigh, he goes, and I go, well, wait a minute. If you're going to go in through the thigh, because they go through the arterial bits in the thigh or in the neck, 
I said, uh, well, will that preclude me from being able to walk much? And they're like, oh, yeah, the next two weeks you're going to have to take it real easy with walking because we're opening up a major artery in your thigh. I said, well, you have to rearrange it. Can we go on through the wrist? And he goes, well, we, uh, we can't here. We're going to have to transfer you over to you know, North Memorial where they've got specialists. But why do you want to do that? I said, well, on Friday I'm supposed to fly to Romania to do this trip, and I've got – you know, 25 listeners that paid three grand each to come hang out with me and go to a Romania, I have to kind of be there. And he's like, Dave, you're having a heart attack. And I'm like, yeah, but I got to get, I got to get to Romania. So his doctor laughed. He said, man, I've never seen anybody with a goal like that. They sent me over to North Memorial, did it all radially, radially, and then sent me home two days later. Three days later, I was climbing up 1600 stairs to the top of Polinari Castle in Romania. And it was one of the hardest walks I've ever had to die. I was so winded through this entire thing because even having this close of a heart attack, it, it knocks you down. Oh, you know? yeah, I bet. So I had to walk up these steps, and it's, like I said, around 1,600 stairs. And we get up to the top. It took me, some of these punk kids were, you know, that are part of our group, they're up there in 15 minutes. But I stayed in the rear, and I would take it 10 stairs at a time. And then I would stop and breathe, and then I'd just take that next 10 stairs, and I was pushing people along and it was great because there were some people who looked at that climb and they're like i'm not going to make it dave and i said i just had a heart attack i'm going to make it you come with me so we stayed in a little pack i brought out my ipod we were listening to 80s rock as we marched up that uh, that (laughs) that hill and made it to the top but that to me that was my mount kilimanjaro moment and getting up to the top it never i've never felt as sweet and and as fresh getting up there coming down i was walking on two pads of jello so my legs are wa- i look like, like the scarecrow walking down uh, the lane in uh, uh, wizard of oz but i had that was a really profound moment for me getting up there and kind of realizing jesus you know 4 days ago i should have been dead and here i am at the top of this mountain looking over you know the the castle remains of vlad the impaler and that was pretty, pretty cool and impactful for me to get out there and, and kind of see that. So I, I can appreciate what Jeff did. I don't think I could make it up 19,000-some feet. That's crazy. Have you ever been to, like, Colorado, any place with that high altitude? Uh, no, nope. <laughs> wow, that'll affect you. Oh, I bet. Oh, oh my God. I, mean, I complain when I do 60 minutes on the Stairmaster at the gym. So. Oh, yeah, well, imagine doing that and then going up 10,000 feet. Yeah. Right? The when we he was mentioning Jeff was talking about Estes Park, Colorado, the Stanley effect. We were laughing. I said uh, every time we went there, they talk about how haunted it is. And I said the real scary part is you know uh, you get up here and you're ghost pooping. I don't even know where this food is coming from, but you are up so far up, everything's working to process out of your body. I'm like passing cran bits from kindergarten, right? <laughs> it's just like <laughs> your body, your body's tightening up and, and shooting it out. And I had no clue about the whole aspect of drinking up there. Nobody clued me in on that on my very first trip. So I threw down a couple of apple teenies with my buddy Steve. And, and uh, I think I was like three apple teenies in and then realized the world was moving really weird. <laughs> And they're like, um, well, haven't you been here before? I'm like, no. And they're like, oh, yeah. Because your blood is so much thinner in this higher altitude, the alcohol is going to hit you a little harder. People were wrecked, Mike. I've never seen reactions like that. I mean, wrecked on two or three beers. And they're, they're guys that I, I've, I've watched put away six or an eight pack, you know? Yeah. And they're just stumbling about. But that there is something to be said about that uh, that altitude. It'll, it'll take you out. And, boy, 19,000 feet. Imagine getting to the point where you your brain is functioning in a way you can't figure out how to zip up your own zipper 
<laughs> you know, maybe one too many uh, apple teenies. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. That's on on even ground. Yeah. I can't even imagine you getting up there and, and having the wherewithal to keep pushing through. That I'm just gonna, you know, I, I'll I'll keep making that move. I I don't know that I could do that. I I respect the hell out of people that do, and there are those people that go out challenging themselves constantly. You know, whether it's yeah. swimming to the deepest depths they can get or climbing to the the top of these mountains. But have you seen the Everest climb? Have you ever seen the video or footage from people that are filming that? Uh, a few, like, you know, over the years, yeah. You just see there's literally bodies along the way. People yeah. that, that will they'll curl up in kind of the fetal position and sit there because they're just so tired and worn out. Yeah. And then they freeze to death. And the bodies just stay there. That's and, and you mark, as a matter of fact, some of the markers as you go along. They're like, oh, then you're going to see the man in red. And you get up there and there's a guy in a red jacket and red hat frozen against the wall. And that, to me, it's what inspires somebody to try to tackle that kind of case. Because, you know, well, I want to be the one to make it, I guess, is yeah. what you're doing. But I don't know. I, you know, I, maybe I just love my family too much <laughs> yeah. to give that a shot. But uh, is, there, is there any one of those kind of goals you'd like to tackle, something you'd like to go out and do? That Yeah, I think uh, not this year, maybe next year, 2019, I'd like to uh, run a marathon. No, that's a, yeah, that's probably at the top of my list is running a marathon. I mean, uh, I'm not the fastest runner. No, uh, no way. I mean, you know, could run fast and come in first, obviously not in a marathon or a hundred yard dash, but I can run for long distances. So yeah, you know, 26.2 miles. I think I, you know, could work up to that. I mean, yeah, they always say that once you pass 20 and I have run, <laughs> once you pass yeah, 20. <laughs> like the last six I've heard are just, uh, insane. Uh. Well, if the first mile was uphill and then the other 19 were yeah, down, yeah. I think I'd be down with that. And that's but, the uh, thing is I, I just have to get uh, – the biggest hurdle for me will be running outside because I run at the gym on a treadmill, but right. it's totally different when you're running outside. And also depending I, – I you know want to do the Twin Cities or maybe go out back to New York and do the New York City Marathon, but also is the elements. That'll be that, – yeah. you know, because – Have you ever thought – you know, they've got that grandma's run up in Duluth. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been thinking about that one. I mean, it's uh, I think it's just a matter of like training with someone or looking it up as to how to go about training for it because I'm sure. I'd be doing it by myself. So, I think what you should do is put on the biggest parka you have and just load the pockets with rocks and run <laughs> so that that way when you get up there and you don't have any of that on you, you're going to be fleet foot, man. Well, actually, I have a weight vest that I oh, you uh, do? yeah for the treadmill sometimes. So I remember in high school uh, doing the mile run. <laughs> and what a torture that was. Oh, yeah. But my, my buddy Paul Navarra, who's an officer now in in, uh, in Illinois, he was on the track team, and he, he kept pushing me. He's like, Dave, it's going to hit you. And I'm like, what's going to hit me? And he goes, just push faster. Push a little harder. I'm like, dude, I can't run any harder. He goes, just trust me. He goes, yeah, I think by the time you hit the next curve, you're going to feel it. And I said, feel what? My legs are killing me. And he goes, just quit whining and run. And I put my head down, and I started charging with him. And all of a sudden, it hit that runner's high that they talk about. Mm-hmm. I've never. Have you ever hit that when you're oh, doing yeah. the? Tra- That's amazing. Yeah. What a feeling, man! I've never had ex- that excited <laughs> me doing going forward because all of a sudden you do start to just move. Oh yeah, it's like you become part of the speed force at that moment, and that was that was awesome. I loved doing that. Uh, I'm not a big fan of running now. I've got <laughs> no cartilage left in my knees. It's basically bone on bone. But that was something that I really respected and, and liked doing once I kind of got over that initial hump of having to do manual work, yeah. <laughs> getting out there to run. 
Oh, and then going back to that, I mean, that was the thing is uh, I remember back in grade school, we did that mile run and there was always kids had, uh, in my class and I had some of my best buddies, uh, you know, you're not supposed to run as fast as you can right out of the gate and right. they would and they would be winded and they could not finish the mile. And right. there I was, like I said, I can run for long distances. So, we, <laughs> you know, I'm passing them up. I mean, sure enough, they were faster than me in the short distance, but uh, run, Forrest, yeah, run. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, so why'd you do this, Mike? Because I just wanted to run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah however long he ran in the movie what like two years yeah six crazy yeah. just kept running and then all of a sudden he stopped and just wanted to go home yep and yep. he had like you know 20 people following him <laughs> yeah become so. like a cult leader out yeah. there well i'm I, you know i'm doing something my son is a minneapolis fireman he's a navy vet and every year he does the polar plunge for the special olympics so this year i've paired up with him on this we're trying to raise three thousand dollars last year our goal was three thousand we hit five thousand Nice. So this year we're aiming for $3,000, and uh, I know Cassie will put up the link for it on, on Tom's show so you can help out on this. But if you can help us, any size donation, a dollar, five, ten, twenty, a hundred dollars $100, that money goes directly to the Special Olympics to help the athletes that need help with training, uh, outfits, travel expenses, and getting them out and involved in the Special Olympics. So you can help me. I'm going to be out in my old-timey uh, swimsuit. I told my son I'm going to go get one of the straw hats and the black and white kind of uh, one-piece uh, 1920s swimsuits. But we're going to go up and we're going to dive in. Have you ever seen those polar plunges? Oh, yeah. yeah Holy I'd... Christmas. I don't know what I'm thinking. No, I've done it, actually. Oh, really? Not, yeah. How cold is that water? I hear it's actually kind of warm under the ice. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, like, uh, it's just like, you know, like they say, like a, just uh, a thousand needles is hitting you at the... You know, oh, all that the sounds time. exciting. Well, I just did it because I was in, uh, we were scouts and uh sure. so like uh, one of them was uh getting merit badges and everything and like on my way to get eagle um yeah we did that and uh we did water rescue and that was even worse knowing that oh, like in the event that you needed to rescue somebody and they were in freezing water just the <sighs> adrenaline that kicks in yeah well i'm gonna be taking the plunge in about i think it's three or four weeks to do this so if you'd like to help you can email me dave at darknessradio.com i'll send you the link that's dave at darknessradio.com, and uh, I'll have Cassie put it up on the Tom Bernard Show uh, Facebook page and on the the, uh, link for today's show, so it's available for you. Um, So please, if you can, make that donation, help us out so we can aid and make more attention for the Special Olympics. And remember to check out the best in Paranormal Talk Radio. I host Beyond the Darkness Monday through Friday. We talk about ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, psychic phenomena, monsters, myths, legends, and more. You can check that out at darknessradio.com. We'll be back with more right here on the Tom Bernard Show. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. Right now, Sabre and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months when you buy a new Bryant furnace. This is the perfect time to replace your old furnace with a new trouble-free, energy-efficient furnace from Sabre. And when you buy Bryant equipment, you're getting one of the most trusted names in the industry, This 0% offer is available for a limited time. Call Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning to find out more, and please tell them that Tom sent you. Sabre and Bryant, whatever it takes. Northern Metal Fab right off the interstate in Baldwin, Wisconsin, is a custom job shop specializing in large-scale projects. Northern Metal Fab is now hiring for all positions, including welders, painters, and inspectors, to provide quality craftsmanship to their customers. Northern Metal Fab is growing, and their growth is your opportunity. Northern Metal Fab offers competitive pay, excellent benefits, and more. Apply online today at nmfinc.com. That's nmfinc.com. Northern Metal Fab is the equal opportunity employer. One, two, three, five! 
We're back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. My introduction, Mike, to the Beatles was reversed. I was a Monkees fan. Oh, I grew up watching the Monkees on TV. Well, I didn't know about the Beatles. You know, what did I know of this? My, and all of a sudden I heard that they were based on, on another band. And I started poking around in my, my parents' albums and fell in love with Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road, the White Album, and absolutely loved the Beatles. I've had a chance to see McCartney live. Uh, Ringo and even Julian Lennon, although not a Beatle, still a Beatle's son who sounds remarkably like his father. And a few years ago, I'm flipping through TV channels, right? And PBS is showing the special, this, this band called the Fab Four. And I watched this and I just sat there blown away. And I was like, you know what? I never got a chance to see the Beatles. It was out of my, my age range to do that, but I would really love to see this. And I, I called around to a few of my friends and then contacted my son, Nathan. And uh, it was just before he was going to go off to college. And I said, hey, buddy, I'm going to go see this uh, this band, uh, the Fab Four. Do you want to come with? And he kind of rolled his eyes and laughed. He goes, sure, old man, I'll go with you. And I got to tell you, Mike, one of the most rewarding things, right? He, he knew the Beatles because I listened to them. He went in and sat down and watched this concert. I should say stood up with me throughout the entire concert. And about halfway through the show, he turns to me and he goes, this is the greatest show I've ever seen. Oh my God, Dad! We're watching the Beatles, and that was such a cool moment that we were able to share. And uh, the Fab Four was absolutely one of the best shows. And I, I found out they're going to be back in town this Friday at the Medina Entertainment Center. Uh, you can get information and tickets at MedinaEntertainment.com. So I reached out. Uh, Ron McNeil is with us right now from the Fab Four. Ron, welcome to the show. Hey. It's- Thanks for having me on. I was going to hang up when you said you uh, first got introduced to music by the Monkees. Yeah. I was going to just get out of here. <laughs> I'm just joking. That's, what's funny is that's the exact same thing happened to me. My older sisters love the Monkees, and then that led me to their Beatle records, and I borrowed them and never gave them back. Ron, the, the idea of this show, what, what impressed me so much is, I mean, getting, getting up and singing other people's songs, and there are great cover bands, and, and that's something that's, that's fun and, and easy enough to do. But to kind of nail every aspect of this illustrious career these guys had, I, first of all, I don't know how you find somebody that looks similar to them, who also can carry off their speaking voice, and then can sing and perform like them with every little twitch and nuance of the show. You guys... Well, it, 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 it is a bit hard to do, you know, and you've got Yoko sitting in the bag waiting for you. You know, that's the problem. Um, well, the thing is... <laughs> it, you're, you got, got, and you guys are phenomenal. That, your Lennon is, is... I can't even tell you how much I enjoyed that aspect of the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, number one, um, like most people in the world, we're all fans of the Beatles. We love the Beatles. We love their music. And let's face it, what they brought to the planet was... Amazing. We started there, and then, you know, we started as musicians, and each of us have a, a slightly different story, but, uh, for example, we found Gavin, who plays George Harrison in our group. We found him, actually. He was born in Liverpool, and we found him in England, and uh, realized, wow, this guy just looks exactly like George and sounds exactly like him, and he's helped us with our accents and different things, but like you said, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a, you know, obviously it's a hard thing to put four guys together who can look something like them, sound something like them, play and sing everything live. I don't know if you know, but uh, the whole show is live. There's no fifth Beatle on the side. We play everything live as a four-piece. Right. And uh, there's no tapes or backing tracks or anything like that going on. So uh, I appreciate that you uh, that you appreciate the attention to detail, which is something that we 
uh, we strive for, you know. Well, and, and you guys do. I mean, down to personal ticks of each one of the Beatles, from the way Ringo shook his head during the, the songs to the way uh, Lennon tapped his foot and, and McCartney's eyebrow raise and, and the little, you know, popping his fingers of the gun move. It's just you guys have embodied this. And as somebody who, you know, I host a paranormal radio show five days a week, and, and we talk about all kinds of strange things and talk about ghosts being channeled. And I got to say, if all four of the Beatles were gone, I would say you guys are obviously reincarnations or channeling because I've never seen an act that is so precise in every motion. And it's not like you guys are, to me, it, it, from the outsider watching it, it doesn't look like you guys are playing a bit. You guys embody what these four men created and perform in a way I've never seen before. So kudos wow. to you guys. Well, thank you so much. You know, checks in the mail. I, <laughs> you want to be our you want to be our manager? I mean, this is <laughs> sign me up. Let me get in on this. Uh, well, I, and I've had a chance. I got to be honest with you. I cheated on you guys. I went out and I saw a few other Beatles cover band, you know, groups Naughty that are out there traveling. And although they were fun and entertaining, there was nothing like watching the Fab Four. You guys, well, thank you. you guys, thank you. I appreciate it. Like I said, uh, yeah. um, you know, everything from our McCartney, who is a right, naturally right-handed player, learned to play the entire show left-handed just for the show. And, you know, we tape his eyebrow up so it looks like Paul, you know. And <laughs> no, don't tell me that. His eyebrows are natural. Don't tell me that. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, okay, sorry. They're completely natural. <laughs> and, you know, a bunch of different things that are uh, some technical things, which a lot of people don't, it just don't take the time to understand. But we're playing songs like... Strawberry Fields and, and A Day in the Life and some of these songs live on stage that the Beatles never even attempted or even thought about attempting to perform live because there was so many different kinds of instruments on there, horns and strings and backwards things and stuff like that, that you know we had to put and arrange as a four-piece to make sure it's, it's going well live on stage and people were able to um, recreate the records that way. And you do a remarkable job in that. Now, do you have to, is it, is, are there a lot of fiery hoops to go out and represent this band and get the permission and rights to do these things? Uh, no, there's nothing like that. No, I mean, as a, as a live performance, there's not really anything that we run into that way wise. I mean, if you're making a film or you have to get some rights to some songs to use in a, in a documentary or something like that, then yeah, you'd have to, you'd have to ask for, what grand rights or sync rights are there but as a band we could play we could play the monkeys if you wanted us to <laughs> all right that's your challenge on friday i'll be there uh, <laughs> all right. <Very> good. <laughs> and and getting out there doing the show and, and being so good at what you do has it ever drawn the attention of any of the surviving beatles have they ever made comment or seen any of the shows that you're aware of well uh we do know that you know i don't know if you know this but our band has a christmas album out, yes. which is kind of weird i do know and, that uh, in, in the style of the beatles which is phenomenal yeah. oh thank you thank you yes yeah, so the the year it came out which was uh, well quite a while now but uh paul's touring band you know uh the guys uh all listened to that album and we know that they they listened to that album on the tour bus and we're getting a kick out of it and uh we've worked with a lot of people around the beatles but not not necessarily the Beatles themselves, but one little secret that we have is that we, you know, backstage we all get together just before the show. It's kind of our secret handshake or whatever it is. But we we do try to perform as if the Beatles themselves are in the audience. And what would they like to see? How would they enjoy themselves being represented? And that's what we try to we try to bring to the stage every night. And you do a great job with it. Uh, do you ever have when you're doing these kind of moments? And you're you're channeling this ability so 
beautifully on stage. I mean, is it ever surreal for you? Do you ever feel like you're out of body watching this thing unfold, or or do you oh, have to be sure. so present? Oh, for sure, especially for me, uh, because I'll look over and see Gavin, who plays George. I mean, the guy looks just like him. Right. I'm looking over at Paul McCartney. I'm, like you said, I'm looking back at Ringo, and he's shaking his head. And so for me as John, it, it's really a treat to be performing with these guys, and, and it really does, uh, in, in some ways, it feels uh, like we're at a Beatles concert. I mean, you can't, you can't really help it, and we're, like I said, we're always trying, striving to make things better all the time, and it, and it really is uh, surreal sometimes. And uh, some of my, some of my, uh, my favorite parts of the show is when I'm not on stage. For example, watching, uh, watching Artie do yesterday by himself, or watching uh, uh, Gavin do Here Comes the Sun. The first part of it he does by himself, and just so I can kind of break away for a minute and enjoy the show too. So it, it's a lot of fun. Obviously, it's not digging ditches. You know what I mean? Right. Right, and Mike, you've, if I know being a big Beatles fan as well, what's great about the show is they really kind of do this evolution from the Nehru jacket-wearing Ed Sullivan look. They, they keep coming out and showing the evolution of the Beatles, from costumes to mannerisms, hairdos, and they really rotate through the entire spectrum. And you guys were even doing some of the solo work. Yeah, um, well, we... Put Imagine, it was actually my idea to put Imagine in the show, although mm-hmm. it's not a Beatles song. I just thought it was so important um, to John and his career and, and Lennon's sort of outlook on the world and how he always wanted peace and how ironic it was that he was murdered, yet he was always talking about peace and love. And and uh, so I think that song's important, so we put that in the show. And as a side project, we actually do have our guy who plays Paul already has his own uh, Paul McCartney and Wings show that we're a part of. Our George has a whole George Harrison show that he puts together, so we know all that material as well. It's just, <laughs> as you can probably imagine, hard to squeeze every great Beatles song into right. uh, you know uh, a 90-minute show or two-hour show, depending on how long it is. They always tell us 90 minutes. It always ends up going at least two hours. How do you, how do you really kind of filter through their songs? Are you just playing off the Beatles' one album and picking out the, the number one hits, or... I know you go deep into the cuts as well, but how, you know that's got to be a, a, a tough job. Do you change up the shows on a regular basis so you're filtering in different songs? Yeah, it is a little bit of a challenge. Obviously, we'd be there for three days playing, you know, you know and still not, right? <laughs> you know, play everyone's Beatles favorite. But uh, basically, we do stick to the hits or songs that um, have some significance in their career. Um, but every once in a while we'll change. We'll change some songs, especially if we've been to a place before or if somebody has a special request or, for example, last week was the uh, anniversary of the Ed Sullivan show, so we try to do maybe the set exactly how the Beatles did it or something like that. Or um, last year we did the entire Sgt. Pepper album. We did it on Access TV, and then we did it at a couple of um, a couple other venues. So if there's something like that going on, an anniversary, we'll change it up a little bit. Every once in a while, we'll try to throw a few songs in there. But it, it's hard to do. There's so, so many great songs, and like I said, we know them all. So <laughs> it's, uh, but it's still fun. It's, it's great to see all the faces light up when you're playing. You, you know this is their favorite song when right. they're singing along. And, you know, there's kids singing along. There's adults. There's grandparents. And it's just, it's just a great thing. 
my wife and I are going to celebrate Valentine's with you guys at the Medina Entertainment Center to watch Woo-hoo. the show. Yeah, she she loves the Beatles, and I was raving about the show and literally just found out you guys were going to be out there uh, tomorrow on Friday. So I said, honey, we're getting tickets. She was so excited about this. Is it hard for you to maintain that that deal that day do you just kind of focus and start talking as john and and going through the mannerisms so that you're in sync with that character or do you just literally switch it on seconds before you step out on stage well like i said it is a lot easier when you know we're getting ready and i'm looking at the other guys and we're all like there's there's the the other three beatles so it's 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 easy to do that but we do a lot of that um getting into character there's a lot of beatles music playing backstage in our dressing rooms and you know looking at a lot of pictures making sure our makeup's right and that that kind of thing so there's a little bit of uh um getting prepared for the show in that way but uh um how many hours know. take how many hours to go over video to make sure you've got the the head motions, the foot motions, the, the everything, they're little ticks that really set it apart. Because, again, to me, that, as silly as it sounds, is what astounded me, that it was every little detail you guys paid attention to for your show. Well, a lot of that's just kind of, you know, burned into our brains, you know, watching all that stuff as a kid. And then uh, if you were to come to my office, you would know why the Beatles are millionaires. You know, we have every DVD and video that the <laughs> Beatles ever did. And so it's a matter of... Um, you know, it's more of a love of, for it than an, an actual job. You know, I mean, if you ask me to be Paul, I might be, I might not be as good, but I know what he would do here because I've been watching it so long. You know, my whole life. So it's, it's more like just, um, just going back to that thing in your brain that says, okay, here's the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, or here's a hard day's the concert scene and a hard day's night. Let's just go out and do that. You know. So have you guys ever tried to switch up roles once in a while just to no, see? No, no. no. No, I, well, I don't think that would be a good idea. We did it once for <laughs> April Fools. <laughs> that was pretty funny. We actually took each other's spots for April Fools and played one song like that. It wasn't. It wasn't very good. No. <laughs> no. You should just stick with <laughs> no, the characters you you've you've, you've pinned no. down. Not a good idea. Well, that's uh, that's great. And again, the show is uh, this Friday at the Medina Entertainment Center. You can find information at medinaentertainment.com, M-E-D-I-N-A, entertainment.com. You can also check out their website. And is it The Fab Four? That's right, thefab4.com. And uh, once, you, once you're doing this, I mean, you guys tour all over the United States and, and around. Is it pretty remarkable to just, you know, get a chance to watch people react to this show that they never got a chance to see the first time? It is. I think that's part of the appeal. Everywhere you go, even places that don't speak the language are, are into our, our show and our, and our band, obviously. Um, the, the music's touched everyone around the world. And I would say if, um, you know, if you have someone that's a Beatles fan in your life, uh, bring them. I know a lot of people, eh, like you were saying in the intro, Eh, it's kind of cheesy, you know. It's it, believe me. It, it, I've had so many people tell us after the show that it, it, what they regretted was not bringing their mom, or oh, next time I'm right. gonna bring my sister, or my brother's so in the Beatles, he would have loved this. And uh, that's the thing I would say. Make sure all your Beatle fans in your life uh, come to the show and enjoy all this great music with us. Ron McNeil, John Lennon from the Fab Four. We will see you on Friday, and I hope we'll see a bunch of the listeners. Stay tuned. We've got more coming your way. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Tom here for my friends at Walzer Automotive Group with some exciting news. Walzer's rolling out Walzer Care on new and most used cars they sell in Minnesota. Well, Walzer Care is a powertrain warranty with coverage for 10 years or 150,000 miles. 
Powertrain coverage is like major medical coverage for your car. Engines, transmissions, all the really expensive stuff is covered. In addition, Walzer Care includes 24-hour roadside assistance. Lock your keys in your car, run out of gas, have a flat tire. Guess what? Walzer has your back. The best thing about Walzer Care, it's free with purchase. That's right, I said free. So, if you're shopping for a new or used Subaru, Honda, Nissan, Mazda, Toyota, Buick, GMC, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, Ram, Hyundai, or Chevrolet, see my friends at Walzer and get Walzer Care for free. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw and Bryant. So what's the latest? The well, latest is we're representing people who are injured through no fault of their own. Uh, people come to us, we talk to them about what their rights are. We talk to them about things that, you know, adjusters would call them up and ask them about. And we represent people in order to get them justice for the injured. And have been for a long time. Very, very successful. No question. I, I, you know, I do meet a lot of your clients. They come up to me on the street and whatever, and they talk about this, that, or the other thing. And they both say... Why do you guys hang out with Doug Sprinthal? <laughs> and I just had no answer for <laughs> He just looks away, you big baby. In any case, that's the whole deal. So people, they got any problem whatsoever, personal injury or other legal problems, whatever, they just reach out to Brad, Sean, Bryant. Yeah, Joe and I have both been president of the trial lawyers for the state. So we talk to people about all sorts of issues. The consultation is always free, and that's what we do. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean, Bryant. And thin and young and lovely, the gal from Ipanema goes Welcome Alan back. Yeah. Alex, how do you know where the Masonic Temple is in St. Paul Park? That doesn't seem to be the... I lived in St. Paul. I was, like, everywhere. But St. Paul Park's on the other side of the river down by I know, Cottage Grove. But I, like, knew people from college that lived okay. on the other side. I don't know. It's like once you live in a city for a while, you get around that's off the beaten track though. it's a masonic <laughs> secret how she knows it right? <laughs> right. Back off. sorry if you sorry. push too much more you're gonna get followed home by some black cars sorry blew up <laughs> hey we have some breaking news st paul students walk to the capitol demanding safer schools and tighter gun laws students are marching from the area of hamlin university or hamlin avenue south and randolph to the capitol in st paul to demand safer schools and tighter gun laws police say more than two thousand students are marching, and an estimated 5,000 people have gathered at the Capitol. You can watch it all right now, I guess, over on Fox 9 live streaming video on Facebook. Wednesday morning, Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton unveiled his proposal to provide $15.9 million to enhance safety in schools throughout the state. The Safe and Secure Schools Act would use the surplus to boost school funding by $18 a student, totaling $15.9 million in 2019. The revenue would be used for school safety improvements and the identification and support of students that may be a danger to themselves or others. The proposal also includes an additional $5 million for school-based grants that would provide mental health services to students who need added support. Now, to me, that's some of the best news I've ever heard. Right, we're we're taking the whole thing into account now, not just let's worry about guns. But yeah. The whole... yeah, you know what? We are and we aren't. We're worried about we're taking the whole thing into account as it happens it pertains to schools. But when crazy people walk into movie theaters and shoot everybody, right, which doesn't happen very often. That that you know. is not, and the school shootings are becoming more and more prevalent. At yeah. least this way, we're starting to address it. And the fact is, if we can get to the students that are having these issues now, maybe that's going to eliminate shootings at other locations as well. I've got a little concern. I mean, my right now my kids, um, 
are up in arms. They want to go out. Their their schools yeah, are nice looking pun. at doing the. Uh, <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, oh no. My kids want to go out and do the the protests, marching around their school. And my my daughter's like, do you have a problem with it? She was all wanting me to go to war with her, and I go, no, I believe in you standing up for what you believe is important. However. I said, the last thing I want is for this to be a public announcement so that whatever Looney Tune can't get into your school to do harm to you can now just drive by the school and shoot you all. Yeah. And she went, oh. And I said, so see, sometimes when the school's telling you we gotta, we got to do this the right way, it's so that they can protect you because the kids are all up in arms that the school didn't want them to just go do it yeah. like that and, and have free reign. But there's some, you've got some, some concerns out there for the safety if kids are just out parading around in front of the school and picketing. That that could put them on the literal front lines again. <laughs> but the youth of America deserve to feel safe and secure in their schools because, folks, I can only run into so many schools and save everybody. <laughs> if I could, I'd run into all of them. Even without a weapon, I'd burst through the doors and I'd be running so fast. I'm actually a very fast runner. People don't know that. <laughs> I'd be running so fast, the guy with the gun wouldn't even know what hit him. Bing, bing, ding, dong, dang, he's finished. Oh, my God. I get emails from the Eden Prairie School District because I did ECFE, Early Childhood Family Education, with Fawn through Eden Prairie. And I got an email two days ago talking about kind of what you were saying, how if people are protesting and they're out in the streets, they're at a risk for... You know, if they're if you're protesting guns, you don't want to piss people off with guns. Well, kind of thing. I, to me, it's not that you're pissing off the people with guns that are just going to be offended that you're you're fighting for guns. But now it's it's putting you out there for the kids that yeah. couldn't figure out how to get the gun into school to do damage. Mm-hmm. Now all I have to do is pull up. Yeah. Well, and even like the women's march two years ago, mm-hmm. I was like, do I go? I feel like I may be. Anytime you're protesting anything, I feel like you're kind of putting yourself in a little bit of danger because sure. you're going to have somebody on the opposite side that's like you're all terrible human beings and I'm going to kill you all, you know. We yeah. hate girls. Yeah, exactly. Down with <laughs> girls. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't know. No, I, I get that point of what, it. What I don't understand is how come it seems like it's it's just focused in the United States. Like there's not school shootings worldwide. Like Europe doesn't have school shootings. Cuz we have way more guns and yeah. looser gun but, control but, but, laws. No, but they have, they, have, they have lots of mass crowd shootings. I mean, all over. I mean, look well, at look they at, don't. They yeah, don't sure. in Japan or England no, or no. Australia. No, no, Japan. There's no guns. Period. Cops don't even carry guns in Japan. Um, <laughs> Hence, but, the that, but, no then, but then you're. But in Japan, you are under Japanese rule. Yeah, you I can't get take that. over your government. Period. They control you at all costs. So that's not what America's about. No, I understand, and it's a, it's a tough argument. Although, you know, from a realistic standpoint, how would we take on the U.S. Army? Mm-hmm. I think the only way that that doesn't happen is we have to have faith in the moral character of the soldiers in the U.S. Army. Because if they wanted to take us out... Citizens have won a, a battle against the U.S. military before. You know that, right? Yeah, not in the last hundred years they have. Oh, uh, yeah, actually, in the last hundred... Well, you've also got, I, I think what a lot of people are mistaking is, right, the, the right to bear arms was because we just came over from a, a government that right. took complete control. Yeah. And this was just the, our way of saying this won't ever happen again. No, I know. And, I, I, and I understand that. And I understand that that was the principle behind the act. But, again, we have to reexamine the laws and the way they were written. And, and the fact is, hey, we are also in a really weird state of, of history, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we do have a legitimate concern that our government could go yeah. to militia, I mean, or not militia, but go into uh, uh, 
corporal lockdowns and such. I, I understand the concern and the fears, and I understand those points. But uh, you know, I mean, there's that. This is the problem. It's it's like a lot of the debates out there. There's no one clear answer, and that's why we can't do it. But at least they're making strides this time. There seems to be some change. Which after Sandy Hook and some of these others, there was a lot of rhetoric. There was a lot of talk. There was a lot of well, this isn't the right time. Yeah. And right now, people are saying no. This is the time. And I. I but how, soon, how soon is there more shootings like the Vegas shooting? How, how many more of those are coming? Anytime you have a mass gathering of people, it gives people a chance to shoot a lot of people. Right. Well, and I think it's, I, I call it the, uh, in fact, he just died last week, the Roger Barrister effect. Now, so those of you that don't know who he is, he was an English guy, first guy to break the four-minute mile back in 1954. Right. right. And at that time, everybody said, nobody can break a four-minute mile. It's impossible. It'll never happen. This will never happen. Well, 27 days after he broke the four-minute mile, another guy did it, and then all of a sudden it becomes pretty common. And I think that's why when we look at these massive school shootings, and they didn't occur when we grew up. I mean, no, no, nobody I, even thought of it. No. But now since Columbine and since, well, actually, before Stockton, California is the first big one. Um, since Stockton and, and Columbine, it just it's in people's minds. And if you're twisted or distraught or whatever your mental health issue is, you go, well, this this will show them, you know. But it be, it's See, the Roger Barrister. I hear some theories about mental health and the prescription drugs they're giving kids for mental health issues. Think it has anything to do with any of it? Yes. Well, I think the guy that shot up the uh, movie theater in Colorado was clearly he was schizophrenic. I mean, he could just. But they tell, say most of the kids that do this are on some kind of medication. Do you well, think? Here, here's where I think the, uh, the big problem is, though, Doug. Right? We grew up in a different era mm-hmm. when a lot of our parents were home with us or taking yeah, care true. of it. And then then kind of my my generation, my mom and dad started working full time. So I was kind of in that first, you know, major wave of latchkey kids, right? Where we were getting our way around. Yeah. So there's not that same hands on principle family wasn't uh, doesn't play as big a role. I think that, it, that that's true, but let's you know mathematically blaming, though it's such I'm not a blaming parents. it's such a small number of people that do this sort of right. stuff but the results are so massive that's why it's hard to i mean the guy that shot up all those people in vegas was what 60 62 he's right. older than me and now, he, and there aren't many 62 year olds that are going to go shoot up uh, a concert but it really well, only takes he, a couple and he was well off he didn't yeah he, he had a lot of money yeah he had no <laughs> criminal background he had no mental health you know so how do you it, it's tough yeah, how do, you, how do you prepare for this? There's no. Is it a bad thing to spend more money on mental health services and try, try to take care of kids as they're growing up? No, regardless of your stance on the gun issues, I think that that just makes common sense. I mean, we got to take care of people. But I, I think a, the medication thing is a very interesting point because pretty much anybody can give you medication for your brain, like any doctor. You don't need to be. A That's psychiatrist right. or a psychologist, you can just be a nurse practitioner and give somebody a prescription for Prozac, which messes up. Well, I, I have a personal story. Not to interrupt you, I have a personal story on this exact matter. I was put on a medication to help me sleep. Uh, it was called uh, uh, it was a diazepam type medication, uh, clonopin. Never, I took one every night before I went to bed. Never had an issue. Did, I didn't feel any difference in my brain chemistry or anything. But one day I stopped taking it. I just decided, you know what? I'm not going to take this anymore. I've been sleeping fine. I don't need it. And guess what happened? My brain went crazy. Like, yeah. I, I no, literally was so irritable, I couldn't even wear a t-shirt. I put a t-shirt on, I had to rip it off because I was so irritable. Like, nothing could touch me. 
Like I went, luckily I was in a controlled environment in my house, but it made me so irritable that I, I was amazed that nobody told me you can't stop taking this all of a sudden. So I went to the doctor and freaked out. I was like, why wouldn't you tell me that you can't stop taking this drug? Like all of a sudden you can't stop taking it. So. I think that's another big problem. People are on meds, and they stop taking their well, meds. Well, kids don't take meds. You know, you can't trust them and to, like, take it. And then they go crazy. Yeah, that's right. Because I literally was going cra- went crazy. Yeah, because it messes up with the neurotransmitters in your brain, oh, and fr- your brain relies on that medication to function it properly. It made me so moody and so irritable. Yeah, so when and you stop taking it, your brain is like, what? And goes haywire. It really did. Yeah. But I was shocked how intense it was. Mm-hmm. I was shocked. But there's still... a. It's a pretty big leap from irritability because of cutting off benzodiazepines right away versus picking up a rifle and shooting a bunch of Yeah, but I mean, he was taking a pill for sleep and decided, (laughs) I don't need this anymore. He wasn't a person. It's like, oh, I'm dealing with psychosis, and so I'm I'm being put on this medication. Right, so somebody was on the edge, and they stopped taking their meds. I could see weird things happen. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I well, and and that is that's unfortunately, we're we're a drug dependent country. Yeah, we, we're so hooked into so many things, and we don't have any realization of what, you know. When I I had a heart attack uh, five six years ago, they started me on a blood thinner, and they're like, "Hey, this is the next wave. This is going to be what people are going to be doing all the time. So you don't have to come in and and you don't have to be in here every day being tested for blood. You don't have to. And now all of a sudden, it's oh, this is killing people. You know that five years Oops, later, never mind, right? Yeah. Uh, well, and and yeah. I'm getting calls constantly from attorneys that are like, "Yeah, do you want to? You want to?" do something about this you know <laughs> you want to sue we have a lot in common we've both been married well between the two of us six times right. we have heart issues so yeah i've got an afib problem i've had it for 10 years and i take meds for it and they keep wanting to do an ablation and this oh. is how they that and for those I've of you that, that don't know is they take electrodes they stick them in your thigh up to the back of your heart and then just start playing star wars with with heart connections and i'm like yeah it doesn't and the way they sell this is the technology is way better than it was 10 years ago. And I said, well, if I can survive the next 10 years, yeah. do you think the technology then, will be even better? And maybe. Well, it might be. You know, my, my brother-in-law had a heart transplant. And really? He, yeah, he had a heart wow. transplant. And he is doing amazing. In fact, within months of the transplant, he was up walking around. And now he's wow. fully recovered and doing amazing. How long? Uh, it's been... About probably a year. Wow. But he's back to work full time. That's, you know, because the, the tough thing with that is sometimes your body will reject that. Well, he, you have to take a lot of medication. He takes, drugs, like, yeah. I think, a ridiculous amount, like eight, like, like, like 40 some pills a day Oof. for the anti rejection stuff. Yeah. And now it's, I think it goes less and less as yeah. your body gets. But I don't know how long they actually last. Eventually, your body will reject it. Oh, really? Eventually, yes. But he and you know what he it changed his perspective on life. He's a lot happier of a person, like a lot happier. That's great. Like it's amazing how how happy this guy is. Right. If you can make these changes and and do it, I guess yeah. If I don't know. So this brings up a good question. Right. So this is your brother-in-law. My brother-in-law. Yeah. And this would mean that you have a sister. I do have a sister. That you've never talked about. Ellie oh. Nick has a sister. I do. Maybe there's a reason three, for that. Her name is Cincy no, Cindy. No, I have a great sister. Three years older than me. Just she lives in the Philadelphia area, so it's okay. 
Different realm, different, different world. world. Yeah, different world. Well, the, the, yeah, the problem is there's just too much going on and not enough understanding of what really is happening, how we can make it. Listen, there's a lot of great medical leaps and advances, advancements that are being made. And, and there are cases where medicines are doing really great things and they're helping people in other countries and they're not getting approved here and it's a lengthy process. And now we kind of understand why, because when some of these are being pushed through, there's no accountability when things go horribly wrong with these yeah, drugs. Yeah, you can't sue any medical anything. Thing. Right, and when the, the the people that push these things through, because we've talked about it on our show in the past, some of these guys and, and uh, people behind these uh, new drugs get them pushed through, even though they haven't hit all the standards, when things go horribly wrong, there's nobody to hold accountable, even though they didn't follow the proper protocol. Yeah, you can't see that. And that's only in America. All right, we have to take a break. We'll continue this conversation and more. You're listening to The Tom Bernard Show. Tom Bernard here for Whiting Clinic LASIK and Cataract. There's no better time than now to ditch your contacts and pitch your glasses. Whiting Clinic is the place I trusted to do this for me, and it's not just me. There's a reason Whiting Clinic is the number one LASIK practice in the United States. Dr. Whiting's unsurpassed experience, the most advanced Contura laser technology, and lifetime coverage are all backed by Whiting Clinic's best price guarantee. Being the experts they are, they wanted to make sure you have the very best for your eyes, just like I did. Call now for Whiting Clinic's $500 off LASIK savings. If you're like me, not a big fan of glasses and contact lenses, then it's time you found out if you're a candidate for LASIK. And Whiting Clinic is definitely the place to go. Call 855-554-2020 today or visit whitingclinic.com to set up your free LASIK consultation. Remember to tell them that I sent you and save $500 on your LASIK. Offer good for a limited time. Call Whiting Clinic for details. Good for both eyes only. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Tom Bernard here with my buddy and CEO of North American Banking Company, Michael Bilski. Michael, this is a tough time for businesses, not only in the Twin Cities, but all over right now. Can you tell me a little bit about what North American Banking Company is doing for your customers? Tommy at the bank, we're helping businesses with all of our tools at our disposal. Lenders are working as long as it takes with our customers to help them through these tough times. We've processed well over 300 loans for customers and funded over $70 million through the SBA's Paycheck Protection Program. Through our payment deferment program, our current customers were able to skip one, two, or even four payments with no penalty. Finally, being a locally owned and operated bank, we're able to move quickly and take action for our customers when they need us most. Why not bank with my banker? God, I can't tell you how great <laughs> it is working with Billski. Did you record that, Andy? Could you send that to me? North American <laughs> Banking Company, a better banking experience. Member FDIC, an equal housing lender. And you wish you could quit, but you're really sick of it. Put your on jobs. Give it to me. We are on We're back. Sitting in for Tom Bernard. I'm Dave Schrader. Tom will be back with us Monday. Alex is in studio with me along with Ellie, Nick, Mike Molina. Doug Sprinthal. The eye candy. The eye. You are. <laughs> You're a good looking man. Uh, yeah, so we were just talking about the, the medicinal side of all of this. Uh, you know, the, the problem is there's just how do you fix things? You know, we're always trying to make these next leaps and bounds in science. We're trying to find the, the next bullet. And, and I know. I know you lead a, a clean lifestyle, Alex. You, at least you try as best you can on that aspect. But, I mean, do you see that there are points when medicine is important and we need it? Oh, absolutely. Like, I am about as anti-antibiotic as you can get because it messes up your entire system. And 
can create superbugs and blah 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 blah. But it, yeah, absolutely, there are reasons that people should take antibiotics. That's right. Like, but I'd say that probably. 75% of the time that people are prescribed antibiotics, they don't need to take them. I think that's getting better because the doctors are saying, look, you... Well, because all this MRSA and staph yeah. and stuff, because people... Yeah, it's like people would, five years ago, have a cough and, here, take this antibiotic. Cause it's just like, why not? But then they didn't realize how, oh, wait, then we're going to build antibiotic-resisting bugs that we can't get rid of and people are going to be hospitalized for months at a time and so but yeah i definitely i think there's i mean i think medication for mental health is a wonderful wonderful thing and it can take somebody's life to from horribly depressing and they don't want to live anymore to having a really good life but it bothers me that they're not under the supervision of right. any they're not controlled buddy. it's not controlled so it's once just they like, stop taking it yeah you can just go into any clinic get Prozac, Zoloft, whatever, and then it's like, bye, good luck. So I just looked this up. Guess what the life expectancy? This is Canada, but they're Canada and the U.S. are the same thing. Yeah. In 1920, so 100 years ago, guess what for men? What life 54. expectancy was? Close, 58 and a half. Oh. That's it now. That's what it is. No, in, no, that's in 1920. That's, oh, okay. That's what it is in Russia right What's now. What's it now? Like 80? Yeah, I think Minnesota just went over 80. Yeah, no, it's 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 actually. Uh, 80 for men, 82 for women. Yeah. But Russia's still 54. We're more concerned about the men part. <laughs> Russia's still 54. Is it men. really? Yes. Really? Yes. Oh, dear. I think it's, in the, it's still in the, in the mid-50s for Russia. Wow. But, yeah, so I think that the main issue with the medication side of it is I wish that only mental health professionals could give prescriptions for mental health medication and when you're on mental health medication you were under their supervision the entire time and, and just nobody gave me instructions that yeah. you can't stop taking these yeah. all of a sudden they didn't even tell me that well that's like i have so many like, friends that, i was so mad when i went back I'm like how could you not tell me this yeah well i have so many friends that it's like you know i had a friend a few months ago that she was like yeah i was on this medication for um I don't even remember what she had, but she's like, I could not breathe. Like I was sitting there in my house, just sitting on the couch. And all of a sudden I just couldn't catch my breath no matter what. And it went on for like a week. And then she went into the doctor and they're like, Oh yeah. The side effect of this medication is air hunger. Yeah. Forget air about hunger. That. Yeah. What marketing genius came up with that term? No, that's like a, it's a no, I like the one with the whole list. <laughs> the, the bottom says or death. <laughs> Or death, yeah, I know. But air hunger is a side effect of pregnancy too, and oh, I get really? I get it a lot. Yeah, I'll just be sitting there, and it's just like, no matter how deep I'm breathing, yeah, I, I, I just can't feel like I'm getting enough air. I don't think and I'd like, like that. My father-in-law, he's on this medication that he, it can make your entire body it like breaks out in a rash, but it doesn't hurt or anything. It just looks bad. But one in three people get this, and they didn't tell him when they gave it to him that this was likely to happen. So he thought he was having some horrid reaction to it. And they're like, no, most people get it. And, but they didn't tell him beforehand. You know, I, uh, are um, you sure it wasn't in uh, the super small print on the outside of the paperwork that they give him? Because if you look he's, now, he's the prescriptions, each what? page gets That's smaller. That's what they said to me. They said, you should have read the paperwork that the, that the pharmacist gave Well, him. he's a doctor. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that he would have read, I don't know. No. You know no. what? Doctors <laughs> are the worst patients. They don't read anything. If their doctor tells them to do something, they just did it. Uh. Even nephews going to pharmacy school and 
and, mm-hmm. and he says, you know, what you should really do is actually just talk to the pharmacist when oh, you yeah. pick up meds and you have them because they know more about them than the docs do. Yeah, yeah they do. Absolutely. Actually, when I've gone in for cold medicine, I've gone up to the, the pharmacist. I'm like, what do you get? What do I got out here that's going to actually help? And he goes, absolutely nothing. That's all garbage. Every piece out there will not help you. <laughs> It'll give you the most temporary and literally temp- maybe 20 minutes of temporary relief. He goes, the good stuff is back here. And I said, all prescription? He goes, no, it's just the stuff you we have to legally yeah, take your ID for. But they've told me what goes. And, and there's been times where I've been like, um, I was on blood pressure medication. And all of a sudden, I just had this... <laughs> Oh, always yeah, felt like yeah, I yeah. got that dry cough. You were on Metropolol, weren't yes. you? Yes. <laughs> and I, I go in and I said, uh, I got this uh, cough. I need something that will knock it out. And he goes, are you on blood pressure med? And I said, yeah, metoprolol or whatever. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah that ain't going to help because that's just a side effect of uh, blood pressure meds. It goes away in a couple of years. Yeah. And he, I go, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you know, it's something you'll either get used to or you won't. And I'm like, but I haven't had it in the last two years. He goes, yeah, sometimes it takes a while to build up that uh, irritation. Oh so God. I had to switch to another blood pressure medication which you know uh, i'm sure something will fall off in six months because they didn't you know tell me on that but yeah. it's just you, you never know what you're going to well, do a- any medication you do mm-hmm. causes damage to something else usually yeah. your, your liver or kidneys yeah all medications. yeah i know i have to go in for regular liver yeah. oh you do checks and stuff like that to make sure that what i'm on is not affecting that people don't even realize it. even tylenol or excedrin it causes liver damage if you mm-hmm. take oh, it every right. single oh, day yeah. oh yeah you're damaging your liver there's, uh, you were talking about the ablation surgery. I had WPW, Wolf Parkinson White Syndrome, which is where the heart will all of a sudden, literally, we could just be sitting here and you could look at my chest and it'll start going like I just ran a marathon. And I could get up and run a marathon and not have that effect. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's basically the electro impulse that goes into your heart. There's like a built in microchip. When that impulse comes in and goes, let's go 400 beats a minute, the microchip says, nope. No, we not only beat today. 80, 80 beats a minute. Well, what it was doing was, it had shorted it out, so it was jumping over that and causing my heart to snap into these moments. Oh, so I had to go in and have ablation surgery, yeah. which I woke up from twice in the middle of it yeah. because they can't completely knock you out and yeah, put you in the no, toilet. To, yeah. So they feed the wires up into you from your, your crotch and, and your uh, neck in the major arteries. They go in and basically stimulated my heart into an attack so they could find the bad pathway. Then right. they burn it out, forcing the pa- the pathway back in. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it it's is. Pretty it, amazing, it's pretty yeah. remarkable, but yeah. when they hit me, I, I sat up, I go, <gasps> and the guy goes, why is he awake? And they said, put him back down. And I'm like, what? Oh, it hurts. He goes, oh it will. God. And I'm yeah. like, what? You think you? this is bad? Here, try this. Yeah. <laughs> and I was done. And then when they pulled the wires out, I woke up because it felt like somebody was shooting electricity through my legs. So they pulled the wires out. Uh, and then afterwards, I, I thought it was funny, right? They, I have to, because they'd gone in through the major artery in my thighs, right? Uh, I have to lay on my back, and I'm not a back sleeper. And as it is, I've already been laying on my back for mm-hmm. hours during the surgery, so my back is cramping. And I start coming out of it, and I'm like, I gotta, uh, I gotta roll over. And they're like, You can't roll over. I'm like, I, got, I can't lay like this. I can't lay like this. So my aunt gets the nurse, and the nurse was not having my whining, right? Yeah. She comes over and she goes, um, uh, well, let me call the doctor and see if I can get you some morphine or something. And I'm like, all right, all right. And she comes back. She goes, well, he said I can give you up to two. I'm going to give you a quarter dose. I said, a quarter dose isn't going to do it. <laughs> she hit me with that. I was out like a light. Um, or, buddy, buddy of mine from oh. college, his dad invented the heart gather. Oh, really? Yeah. Amplats. Name Amplats Medical Center. What? Look at you. Yep. Do you know about my mother's interactions with one of the Amplats people? They're all crazy. 
We have to talk about Allegedly. that. Allegedly. Oh, boy. Oh, Can we talk about it on air? air? God, yes. Oh. Off the air. Okay. Oh, my God. My mom's going to lose her mind. Mike, so, maybe you can Kurt. delete those names as we mentioned them on the show. <laughs> keep your keep, keep uh, Tom's show legal free here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's some skeletons in that family. But oh Kurt, Kurt was brilliant. I mean, he is brilliant. Yeah. He, yeah. And he went into the same field as his dad. He started making... Uh, sheaths that they would use in uh, surgery on babies' brains. That mm. and, and he also started a company and made a, just a ton of dough making high-end fishing lures. He has a lot of money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot. I went to the doctor yesterday. They told me I'm going to live a very long time. That's of course you So are. did you up the month count? No, I, I, I'm going to have to. She did, oh, yeah. She did you said ch- you were going to die at whatever. 322 months. Yeah. <laughs> she did a chest no, x-ray. No, I bet you were down to 290. So you've added another 32 months. No, it was always, always, always over three. It was close. And then she did. She checked my heart. They did an uh, ultrasound, checked every valve. Mm-hmm. She said, you look like a 16-year-old boy. Everything inside there. Is that because you're smooth? I don't smooth know. Smooth and shiny? She said, your heart, your lungs look like a 16-year-old boy. She said, you're going to live a long time. I had a, uh, on Mother's Day, uh, six, seven years ago, I wake up not feeling right. I get up, I go take a shower, and I'm like, I still don't feel right. So I go back and lay down, and my whole left arm is hurting. And I'm like, but I don't know if I was laying it, because I I sleep weird. I kind of bunch my arm up, and I lay on it. So I didn't know if I laid on a nerve wrong. So it's bothering me. So I get up, and I I tell my girlfriend at the time, I'm going to go into the hospital and just get checked. So I I go into the hospital. they're there with me. They're running these stick tests, looking for these blood gases from a right. heart attack. Yep, yep, they're yep. doing EKG. They can't find anything wrong with me. They kept me all day. And then they bring in dinner for me. I start eating, and I'm like, I don't feel good. I don't feel good. He goes, well, we're going to send you home. He goes, we've done, you know, usually we only do three of these stick tests. We've done six. There's nothing showing you have a a, a heart issue. I said, all right, I'll go home. And I go, oh. And he goes, what? And I grabbed my jaw. I said, man, it just feels like somebody punched me in the jaw and drool just starts pouring out of my mouth. The doctor puts his hand on my chest, lays me back down. He goes, get him to ICU. He's having a heart attack. And they're like, what? So they dope me up overnight, which I thought was weird. You're having a heart attack. Don't worry. We're going to put you to sleep and do an exploratory tomorrow. How about you fix me now, Doc? I'm having a heart attack. But they ran the the hoses through me. I had a a strange issue. Um, I had a near fatal massive non-heart attack heart attack i slipped a clot somehow that went through a pfo which is a hole in my heart and the heart the way it pumps it shoots usually the shot right up to the brain and it was a widow maker but what happened was this blood clot went in and the heart beat the right way that it pushed it down into another artery and they showed me a photograph and it was like the size of my pinky you know the the x-ray and it's all dark gray and there's just this real thin line of black and i go uh, what's that and he goes well that was all that was left of the blood flow to that part of your heart mm-hmm. so you don't have the heart damage you would have had in a heart attack but you had the closest to a massive widow making heart attack you could possibly have without having a heart attack he's i said well what'd you do he goes we just lay, they basically laid a little vacuum in there and sucked the blood clot up and that was it. But See, that, that was another moment where they kept me on that blood thinner mm-hmm. for a long time. And I'm like, I, do I have to be on this? Like, well, we think so. And then I said, well, what do we, well, okay, I'll t- tell you what. Take yourself off it for the next two weeks, and we're going to test your blood. So, so they test my blood. Oh, yeah, you definitely have this uh, coagulation issue. You're going to have to yeah. stay on it. So I start reading myself online about this. And it said, in order to get proper tests, you should be off this for six weeks. I'm like, I've only been off two weeks. And the doctor. Don't worry about that. Just uh, So I kept myself off it for two weeks, or uh, six weeks total. And then I demanded another blood test. 
And he's like, well, you're not supposed to just quit that cold turkey. I said, I'd already been off it two weeks. What is the harm of another four? So I go in. I don't have the coagulant issue. It no. was a byproduct of the of the uh, blood thinner that they were giving me. Yeah, you have to educate yourself over right. top so of your doctor. That, and you he really goes, do. you probably saved your life, especially in Minnesota, because I slip. I fall every yeah. winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on this blood thinner, you whack your head once and... See ya. Yeah, you're yeah, cooked. That's how I knew my second marriage was in trouble. Because the first AFib, the first time you have an AFib episode, you think you're going to die. Because your heart starts going 160 beats a minute and then stops and then it goes all over the place. Right. I woke up Sunday, it's like 3 in the morning on Monday. And wife at the time rolls over and goes, so What's the matter with you? And I says, I think I'm having a heart attack. And she goes, Well, why don't you call me when you get to the hospital and let me know how everything's going? <laughs> So I drove myself there, which is you're not supposed to do no, that. No. Look at you and I. We're Ironmen, man. But, but I was close by. I went into uh. Woodwinds. And you get really good service at a hospital. And they say, sir, can we help you? And you say the I following, I think I'm having a heart attack. Right. Yeah. You get your own chair. You get your own <laughs> guides and everything. And Heart attack and you're in labor. That's, you're going to yeah. get the star treatment. Yep, that's right. <laughs> And then, and then they did that. That's how I knew about the blood gases thing. They did that and said, yeah, you don't have a heart attack. How do you feel? And I said, suddenly a lot better. Right. <laughs> what was the, the diagnosis then? AFib. Just they AFib. said, you should talk to your, uh, go see your doctor. And I said, that would be helpful if I actually had one. Right. And they assigned me one. And this guy, he was just awesome. He's total type A and a total nut job. Those so the he, best doctors. The first time I went through all the stuff with him and he goes ah you should be fine we're gonna do put you on some different meds that'll help it and uh you got a long life ahead of you not to say that you might not drop dead in the parking lot in 10 minutes because that can happen <laughs> well, that's so one time he's doing some blood work about something he goes I'll call you Sunday with the results his phone rings and goes Dr. Cunningham I got your results from your test ah shit I said what's the matter and he says oh nothing you're fine the Vikings just fumbled oh, my oh God. Up. so did that cause the heart attack <laughs> Oh That's God. great. We have to uh, take a break. When we come back, Tina Alexis Allen joins us to talk about her book, Hiding Out, a memoir of drugs, deception, and double lives. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. Right now, Sabre and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months when you buy a new Bryant furnace. This is the perfect time to replace your old furnace with a new trouble-free, energy-efficient furnace from Sabre. And when you buy Bryant equipment, you're getting one of the most trusted names in the industry, this 0% offer is available for a limited time. Call Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning to find out more, and please tell them that Tom sent you. Sabre and Bryant, whatever it takes. Northern Metal Fab right off the interstate in Baldwin, Wisconsin, is a custom job shop specializing in large-scale projects. Northern Metal Fab is now hiring for all positions, including welders, painters, and inspectors, to provide quality craftsmanship to their customers. Northern Metal Fab is growing, and their growth is your opportunity. Northern Metal Fab offers competitive pay, excellent benefits, and more. Apply online today at nmfinc.com. That's nmfinc.com. Northern Metal Fab is an equal opportunity employer. That wasn't my case. It wasn't working too hard that gave me the heart attack. <laughs> ak, 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 ak. Radio, that's not a thing, is it? Oh, my dad could do it. Yeah. yeah. All right, we're back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Tom is off in Punta Cana. He'll be back with you guys Monday. Tomorrow, Alex and Catherine will be joining me again. 
Along with, I think we've got some comedians, we've got some other guests, we've got a lot of stuff. Uh, you might even be able to win 20 grand tomorrow. What? Well, not specifically really? tomorrow, but you know, tune in and find out what's going on. Tina Alexis Allen joins me now. Her book, Hiding Out, a memoir of drugs, deception, and double lives. Tina, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. From New York, it's raining and snowing here. Oh yeah, you guys are another Nordeasters heading your way, huh? I know, it's crazy. Yeah, we've been having some crazy weather lately, but uh, it's okay. I'm, I'm safe, I'm inside, so it's all good. And anyway, how could I complain? You're in Minneapolis. See, I should never complain about weather. You know, That's it's right. funny. All of my East Coast friends keep saying that, but year after year, it's the photographs of the East Coast with their exactly. uh, roof-high snowbanks oh, that hello. make me think, hmm, <laughs> you guys might be a little worse for wear than we are. Yeah. <laughs> this is, I guess it's just the cold we imagine. You got all that cold. Oh, no. You know? I'll take the cold over 42 feet of snow any day. Uh, actress yeah. and playwright Tina Alexis Allen's audacious memoir unravels her privileged suburban Catholic upbringing that uh, was shaped by her formidable father, a man whose strict religious devotion and dedication to his large family hid his true nature in a life defined by a deep, secret, and dangerous lies. What made you decide to come out and, and tell the story now, Tina? Well, you know, I've been working uh, as an actor for, you know, 20 years, and I've done uh, a lot of autobiographical work. Um, I've done two solo shows, um, both, you know, you know, chronicling things uh, throughout my life. Uh, I played my father five years ago off-Broadway, telling his version of this book, uh, or, or much of it. And um, it just feels like a culmination of um, almost my life's work, of kind of unraveling... Uh, you know, some painful, traumatic stuff from my childhood that um, I've, I've had enough years to sort through. And I just don't feel of my life in the way uh, I guess I used to. And I felt like now was the time where I could really tell it from my younger, you know, younger voice, which is how the book is written. Um, first person from my 18-year-old to early 20s voice. Now, your father, a very devout Catholic, was was he in constant internal turmoil because of his his religious upbringing and his sexual predilection um i think he i think he definitely uh struggled you know i i don't know once how am i to know why he uh you know drank heavily which he did but but i sometimes muse that it probably had to do with the fact that you know he was trying to consolidate being a very devout um faith-based man who was devoted to the church uh, in more ways than we used to, we knew initially uh, with his Vatican connections. But um, yeah, I do think his his sexuality, which he he shared with me when I was eighteen, secretly, uh, probably had a lot to do with um, with the guilt and and shame and trying to consolidate all that. Yeah. What what made him at the age of eighteen to finally confide in you with what he would uh, what he'd been hiding all this time? Um, well, basically what happened is, you know, I had been um, living uh, secrets and lies myself. Um, I had been with both um, uh, men and women, boys and girls, you know, uh, at a young age. Um, by the time I was 18, I was in a relationship with a woman, uh, quite a bit my senior. And uh, my dad and uh, my girlfriend and I went out to dinner, and uh, he just basically picked up on it. And, and then after he said he knew, which, of course, was shocking and you know, scary enough, um, uh, he proceeded to say, I buried my lover in the war, and his name was Omar. And, um, you know, that changed my life. Uh, I became his confidant and his secret keeper, and in a way, he became mine. 
uh, it pretty much spirals out of control. I won't give it all away, but um, we went on a pretty wild uh, and, and wicked journey um, together until uh, a lot of stuff starts to fall apart. Now, was he aware of what was going on in your youth when you were nine years old and your brothers were sexually abusing you? No, um, but I did. I, I did tell him, and that's that's uh, actually uh, a part of the book. But um, uh, no, uh, he did definitely did not know. You know, he he was a, you know, on the surface, he was a Catholic travel agent. That that was a legitimate business he had. But of course, the book reveals a secret double life uh, of work that he was doing with the church and the Vatican. Um, but he was just gone so much. You know, I, I don't think he knew much. In fact, I didn't really have much of a dad that, that I, you know, was close with or, or felt maybe even loved me. So at 18, when he when he dropped this bomb on me and I became his chosen one and seemed to just then uh, just have nothing but affection and love for me, it was kind of complicated. You know, it came with a price, but I did appreciate having a father um, that I never really had prior to that. But no, he didn't know anything about that. And, the fact and I wasn't going to tell him, yeah. And and for somebody, you know, I mean, you survive this fact with this secret. I mean, was it hard to to hold that in and, and keep that secret to yourself, uh, you know, at the age of nine and go on? Or was it, that just was part of your life, so you didn't know that it, it didn't belong there? Yeah, you, you know, Dave, I think I didn't know because, um, you know, when I look back on it, I think uh, that the house was, you know, it was chaotic. I had 12 older brothers and sisters. Um you know, when something like this happens inside of a home, and, and we all know that it does uh, probably more often than we'd like to think, um, it's complicated because you've got, you know, sort of a base level of love for your family. So, it, it you know, even though there's a sense that, of course, this is wrong, uh, I don't like it, there's also this complication of I, I'm, I'm not wanting to get somebody in trouble or... Uh, it's it's just it's hard, you know. And in my house, we grew up in a culture of secrecy. So even though that I couldn't have told you that then, but when you grow up that way, obviously my father had lots of secrets. And even though we didn't know them, you know, it's almost like it's in the air. You know, you know what I mean? Right. When you're just immersed in a way of life, you don't even have to have words for it. Kids are smart, so I think I knew secrets were part of this world I was in and so as you're dealing yeah. with this uh, abuse how long did that from age nine to how long that that you had to deal yeah. with this? um so I so I think that it, it probably was about uh two or two, two I'd say two or three years my I, I got into um a crazy uh liaison I'll call it um it's hard to I mean it's abuse but <laughs> that's what you call it but at the time and in the book I'm still very protective of this next um crazy um, liaison that I began having, which was with my middle school teacher. Uh, so I think in a way I got away from my brothers, but sort of ran into the arms of um, what looked better. But um, of course, I know better now than to say that. But at the time, uh, you know, when you're dying of thirst, you know, you don't really know uh, that you're drinking a glass of dirty water when someone hands it to you, if you know what I mean. I do. Do you think that when you... Um you know, I know that the, as you just alluded to the the inappropriate relationship that started to take place with the teacher. Do you yeah. think that because of the secrets that you were hiding, the the kind of broken aspect of who you were was was evident to this person, and that that's why? I mean, 
how do I pose this question properly? Is that how they know, know. that you're yeah, I know. you're accessible to that uh, kind yeah. of uh, attachment? Yeah, um, I, I, I don't I don't think um, in any way what you're saying is off base. I think in fact um, I, I think it's one of the problems with you know kids that aren't sort of getting their needs met in a healthy way. I think they are the ones that are sort of hanging out or needing attention or, in my case, really acting out. I mean, I was a total uh, troublemaker by that point. I was acting out what was happening at home, getting in trouble in school, you know, a wise, smart-ass tomboy. Um, And I was, you know, releasing, I'm sure, all the angst, you know, sideways in class and troublemaker. So she kind of took me under her wing. This teacher was a woman. I don't know if I said that. so uh, she, it began like that. So it began sort of as a mentoring, as a help, as a let's get her back on track. I was at a Catholic school. The nuns basically asked this lay teacher to, you know, she was the cool teacher. So they asked her to sort of take me under her wing. And, and so it all sort of started in a positive way. Um, and, yes, I do think my, look, I'd already been sexualized. So I think people do pick up on that. Absolutely. Pedophiles and otherwise, you know. And I'm curious, did did your sexual choice come because of the abuse that you dealt with at the hands of men at first, do you think? Or or did, was that, and, and I only ask that because there are so many people that question sure. that, that aspect of, of sexuality. Where where does yes, that come no. from? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, a perfectly valid question, actually. Um, it's interesting. I, I feel like, um, you know, Dave, I'm at a place in my life. I happen to be with a woman now for a long time, but uh, and I'm happy and good, but... Um, I, I feel uh, if I wasn't in the relationship I was in now, I could easily fall in love with a man. I, I don't feel, uh, I actually personally, I, I don't like to identify because it's, it's just, I, I'm, that's just who I am. But I think initially my choices for sure was coming out of a reaction. Absolutely. Um, but I do feel that I've, I'm in a place now. I've loved men. I've loved women. Um, and I feel very comfortable in my sexuality and I, I see more, I guess I would say, human beings um, than I do necessarily identifying this or that. Love that's is love. That's that's the aspect. Yeah. It has nothing to yeah, do with that's, general... Uh, that's how right. I feel. I know that's not everybody's thing, and that's cool. But, um, yeah, that's that's where I'm, I'm coming from at this point in my life. Yeah, love is love. I know you want to kind of keep part of the book so that people will read this about the, the kind of uh, weirdness that opens up once your father has, has come out to you. <laughs> But talk to yeah. me about these secret stashes of cash, passports, yeah. and, and documents that I your know. father had. What what was yeah. going on? Yeah, so we, we always wondered, like, where all the cash came from because, you know, 13 kids, a swimming pool, Chevy Chase, Maryland, private schools. We traveled quite a bit, um, summer homes, sometimes at the beach. Um, it's like, okay, a Catholic travel agent, that's, that's pretty good. That was probably something uh, pretty in demand, <laughs> um, but not that much. Um, as I became closer to him, I started uh, carrying his secret at 18 and moving into my 20s. Um, I started to work for him in the summers, um, and I started to see things. And we also traveled together. So I, uh, you know, we went off to, to Europe and to the Middle East. And, and on many of these trips, I started seeing some behavior. And I noticed some things when I worked at the office. And, yes, a, a, a briefcase of cash and um, other things, which I won't give it all away. But um, there was definitely behavior. And my dad had very high connections to the Vatican, um, 
which didn't never really quite made sense to us the level of access that he had and so the book explores that and discovers that and answers some of that not all of it but um, definitely uh, without giving too much away it's it's a double life and then another double life <laughs> so it's, your father um, was a vampire life. hunter for the Vatican <laughs> exactly how <laughs> did you know well it, it was bound to come out eventually uh wow, to, to have all of this kind of subterfuge in your life and and have all of this going on you know it says that this is a riveting cinematic true tale stranger than fiction when you look back yeah. on this is it like you I mean hollywood and especially in today's day and age looking at a lot of the movies and, and stuff being trolled out couldn't come up with something this deep and weird are you yeah is it hard for you to look at or is it just like this kind of surreal life you've led well i think you know you like any kid you know you know what you know you know kids grow up in poverty and, and god god forbid any of us had to go go through that sort of serious poverty and i'm sure they feel um, a physical sensation about that, but at the same time, you know, there's so much pain that kids suffer of all kinds, and yet, when you're on the other side of it, and that's not your experience, on a certain level, I don't want to say it, 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 it appears worse, but I think the, the relationship to this thing isn't as extreme as we on the other side see it to be, because it's all they know, it's all I knew. So not to say it wasn't horrific and painful and messed me up <laughs> it did it really did for a while you know and i had a lot of work to do i was on megan kelly on monday morning and she sort of rattled off some of the things you just did and then she said she didn't know where to go she's like what where do you want to start you know and it kind of threw me and and that struck me when i looked at the the footage they did uh at the beginning they sort of ran through what you just ran through and it, it kind of hit me and sometimes it does you know and that was one moment where you just stop and go wow i did survive that you know like that was big and it is big and i know it intellectually but i don't always own it the way other people do if you know what i mean right well you come at it from a different perspective and and looking yeah. at these things like we talked with scott hamilton it's not the falling down that defines you it's the standing back up and how do you just make life happen out of what you've dealt with instead of becoming a professional victim you became somebody that moved forward tina alexis allen will have uh, the information up links to the book thank you for joining us and spending some time here that's going to do it we'll talk to you on monday with the family 